Well, we are in this series where we're focusing on the fact that God takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things with ordinary people. And today, some lessons about that movement from ordinary to extraordinary from the life of Joseph in Genesis 37 and following. How many of you know what this is called? These are called spike strips. Uh, these are what law enforcement uses to slow down or stop a car that's moving in a direction they can no longer tolerate or at a speed they can no longer tolerate. And I think the way it works is obvious. You lay that down across the road, car that's speeding out of control goes across it, the tires are all punctured, and the car is forced to slow down. That's a spike strip. These are also spike strips, probably spike strips more of you have encountered than the first version of spike strips. Excuse me. There would people used to slow down and stop other people who were moving in a direction they could no longer tolerate. Often, the direction people are moving that they can no longer tolerate, they can no longer tolerate, is moving from ordinary to experiencing something extraordinary. And it's those human spike strips that I want to focus on this morning as the Lord always longs to do something off the wall, something outrageous, something crazy, something wonderful through people who are standard people, ordinary, faithful people. It's those human spike strips, though, that are our focus today. Because from them, I've learned a bit uh, from uh, my experience as a Christian. Here's a lesson I've learned from experiencing, mind you, I've been the human spike strip as well. I've been the detractor, the discourager, the insecure mouthpiece trying to stop somebody from doing really well. But I've experienced those things too, and so have you, I'm sure. And one of the lessons I've learned from all of that is, believe it or not, I have learned to be a bit more careful about who I share my craziest, faith-demanding, wildest, extraordinary dreams with. Have you learned that yet? Because not everybody is worthy of your crazy dreams. Not everybody can handle them. I've learned that. Discovered that any road to, from ordinary to extraordinary will be well stocked with potholes and bandits and spike strips, all designed to slow you down, if not stop you altogether. And here's the sad part. Sometimes those people are the very people who should be encouraging us the most. Sometimes they're our own people. Now, it's important to make a distinction here. We all know that if we have wise, thoughtful, careful people in our lives who are for us and mature, we have this crazy idea, we go to them and they'll, they might say to us, now you might want to rethink that. Let's, let's make sure we're thinking good thoughts. Is that really a direction you want to go? And doesn't mean we don't ever listen to them. But when there are those people who just seem to be saying, slow down, stop, other phrases, don't rise above the pack, who do you think you are dreaming those crazy dreams? What do you think you are, Jesus himself? You're nobody. I mean, didn't they even say that to Jesus? Who is this guy? Didn't we used to wash his feet and change his diapers? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Now he comes off saying his Messiah. He's out of his mind. Distractors, detractors, 
I've learned to be more careful about who I share my crazy dreams with. When I was in high school, my best friend was Bill Gard. And I loved his whole family, and we were almost like one family. And we, we used to spend lots of time at Mrs. Gard's house during the day in between classes because we liked her, and she had a well-stocked refrigerator, which are two good reasons to be at her house. And one time I was over there, and it was just after I'd become a Christian. So this is 1975, I was over at her house and visiting, and, and she says, now what's this stuff I heard you got all religious? Artemis, she called me Artemis. <laughs> She's the only one that called me Artemis, I don't know. I said, yeah, Mrs. Garda, actually, I believed this stuff all along. I became a Christian recently, but I told her, what I really mean is, I just finally got the guts to start living what I believed all along. That's, that's what just happened to me. That's why you see... A difference. And Mrs. Gard was so used to me being ordinary that she couldn't even begin to fathom the thought of something extraordinary. So when I told her, as a matter of fact, lately I've been thinking about being a pastor, and she, you know when somebody bursts out laughing and they spit? <laughs> she didn't even have anything in her mouth and she spit it out when she was, she was laughing so hard, you know? And she actually looked me in the eye. I remember we were in her living room and she said, a pastor? Are you kidding me? She said, with all seriousness, you'll never make it. There is no way. I've learned to be careful about who I share my craziest dreams with. And man, if you'd have known me back in the day, you'd agree with her. That was a, cra that was a crazy dream. But apparently, 42 years later, I've outlived Mrs. Gard's prophecy I tell you, not without damage to myself and damage to the churches I've served. There's no question about that. But she was, she was throwing a spike strip across the road. Pastor Jeff told me that, you know, Pastor Jeff did a split shift here at Marin Covenant. So he was on staff uh, for about seven years, I think, before I came. And then he left for about four years. And then 13 years ago, uh, I came here, and not long after that, Pastor Ben came, uh, and uh, about the second year that I was here, the first year after the first year we were together, we decided, man, Jeff's heart for Marin and Linda's heart for Marin never stopped. They should be here with us. And he was leading a, one of our Bible, Bible colleges then, and we started talking and decided that he was going to come back. And he told me after he came back that people that we both know, he and I both know, Ben, you probably know most of these folks too, that are covenant-ordained pastors, so they're in our denomination and they're credentialed pastors, were saying, Art Greco and Jeff Mazzarello on the same pastoral team, that is an explosion waiting to happen and not a good one. That is, as you mentioned earlier, Ben, a train wreck, train wreck. They'll never make it together in the same team because they both need the ball too much. They both need to preach. They both are too much alike. They're going to kill each other. They'll wring each other's necks. And it was only true for the first year, but then we got over it. You know? <laughs> but there are always those people in your life, right, who want to throw a spike strip across your road and flatten your tires. When you're en route, from ordinary to something extraordinary. When you have this crazy dream, what gets accomplished in the world that demands faith and that brings people to the place of saying, wow, if it wasn't starting out as a crazy, impossible, undoable dream? There are people who can't 
understand that. And sometimes they're the very people who should be encouraging you the most. So over those 42 years of pastoral ministry, I've learned that lesson. I've learned some other things too. Here's one. When you dream of doing something extraordinary, extraordinary for God, people, as I said, sometimes even your own people, would really much rather you just parked yourself at ordinary and stayed there. Ricky Skaggs had a song I love. I love Ricky Skaggs of country music. And he had this song called Don't Get Above Your Raisin. And he wasn't talking about a dried up grape. He was talking about don't forget where you came from. Don't get above the way you were raised. Remember your people. Remember who you are. And he was talking about how there's this... um, inversion layer, this cultural inversion layer that's supposed to keep you in your place. People would rather you stayed at ordinary. And when they can't stop you altogether, they'll throw things in the road to slow you down. We've been reminding you that God loves to do extraordinary, mind-blowing things through ordinary, through common people. But the sad thing is that sometimes other people aren't always as excited about that as God is. They're not as excited about what might happen that's good for the purposes and agenda of God, especially when they're not the ones bringing it about. They care more about how they're perceived sometimes or their own insecurities than they do about the task before us. And they don't mind people going hungry. And they don't mind people going without a message. They don't mind the church really gaining some ground unless they're the ones who are involved in it and causing it. And they'll do anything they can sometimes, even our own people, to keep you from entering the circle of the spectacular. And that's where the life of Joseph comes in. What I'll do is I'm going to just jump in on some texts that are well down in the story, and then go back to the beginning and explain how we got to those things that we're reading. We'll try to learn the story of Joseph that way because it's pretty long. It's several chapters. Um, It's several chapters, and we wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't get out of here before the business meeting starts if I didn't do it that way. What are some of the obstacles? What are some of those spike strips that people, even sometimes our own people, want to throw in our path. The first one is jealousy. It's actually probably a cause more than an actual practice. But there's this foundation of jealousy or this foundation of insecurity that leads to jealousy. And we see that in the story of Joseph. Let me read from Genesis 37. And then I'll come back and explain what we just read. Because this is well into the beginning of the story. When he told, this is Joseph, when Joseph told his father, Judah or Israel, and his brothers, Joseph, by the way, had brothers from two different moms. So he had, from one different mom. He had his mom who was Judah's favored wife because that's the wife he really wanted. He was tricked into marrying two women. You know, the good... Never mind. I was going to say something funny, but probably wasn't going to be that funny. Um, 
<laughs> but let me laugh for a second because it was funny to me. <laughs> I'll tell you afterward if you really want to know. But the, the wife that Joseph's dad loved, that he originally contracted for, he had to work seven years and then got tricked into marrying the older sister. And then she said, that's not the woman you agreed to give me. And so, okay, work another seven years and I'll give you her younger sister who's really hot in your eyes. And so he worked another seven years and got Joseph's mom. And Joseph is his father's favorite for obvious reasons. Joseph's dad made him this multicolored coat, the dream coat. They even have a, 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 Holly, or, um, uh, a New York play about, you know, a Broadway play about this, this crazy multicolored coat. So Joseph, it says in Genesis 37, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And it says in verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. And his father kept all of this in mind. How did we get to that text? Joseph had gone as his father's favorite, which already creates family tension. Go to his brothers and he says, they're in the field working. And this younger brother comes and says, I had a dream the other night. And in my dream, you were all bowing down to me. I was your ruler. I walked in and you all bowed down. And he had two different expressions of that, which did not necessarily endear them to him, him to them. Can you get that? So there's already tension. They already don't like that he's the favorite. Father really wishes he could spend all the time with Joseph. Got this fancy coat that's a constant neon reminder to them that they're not as special in their father's eyes as he is. They've got these two different sub-families with two different moms. And this dude has the audacity to come up and tell them, one day I'm going to rule you and all of your families. I'm going to be the man. And then Joseph comes to his dad and tells his dad about these dreams and this experience. And then we read this text where it mentions that his dad kept that in mind was uh, a bit offended by, are you crazy, what are you talking about? And that his brothers were jealous. Sometimes jealousy is the driver behind the spike strips, the, the, uh, the obstacles that people who should be supporting you when you're dreaming big dreams for God and wanna go for something great, those people that should be doing that, sometimes they're gonna be your greatest hindrances. Forgive them. There was a book by Marshall Shelley 30 or 40 years ago for pastors in a pastoral training book about how to lead churches. And he's talking about pastor-congregation relationships. And Shelley's, the title of Shelley's book was Well-Intentioned Dragons. So pastors go to the church and they think that elder is a well-intentioned dragon, fire-breathing, but he or she means well. And that's kind of what is going on here when people are jealous of you. Jealousy is what happens when small-minded people, or at least smaller-minded people, by the way, that's usually temporary, so live with some grace, and remember. It's what happens when small-minded people care less about what you might accomplish for the agenda of God 
than they do about how it might make them look when you accomplish it. Did you get that? They care less about what you might accomplish for the agenda of God than they do about how it might make them look once you accomplish it. And they're jealous of that. And that's a roadblock. Second in the life of Joseph, that you're maybe a person who's experienced. So jealousy, the second one I want to focus on is betrayal. Somebody asked me once, what's the fastest way to wound you to the point of stumbling almost? My answer is always the same when I get asked questions like that, betray me. Because loyalty is a big thing for me. I'm almost obsessed with it. Uh, almost to my own, uh, you know, my own, um, my own pain, my own inefficiency even, betrayal. Genesis 37, listen. So Joseph's brothers are not thrilled with him. His father, after he's offered these dreams, sends him to go check on his brothers again. And it says in the scripture, which I encourage you to read the whole thing later, they see him coming from afar. So he's coming down the hill. The brothers are over here working, and here comes Joseph down the hill. How do you think they recognize him from so far off? They didn't go get the binoculars out and look at him back in that day. He's got this big old bright coat. Could be no question about who he is. And he comes down the hill, and they see him. When Joseph came to his brothers, his brothers stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into a cistern. And the cistern was empty, like into a well. There's no water in it. And then, you gotta love this. And then they sit down and eat their lunch. So catch this, they've pulled their brother off of his camel, stripped him of the coat that represented everything they despised about him, grabbed him by the clothes, drug him kicking and screaming, to an empty well and threw him in. And later the text reminds us that he was in the well pleading for them to pull him up. Don't do this, get me out. And the echoing of a well. And they're over here a little ways away from it saying, who, who had the pastrami and cheese? Was it, did you order the pastrami and cheese? Hell, trades of those chips for this Kit Kat bar. Mm. It's amazing the coldness of these guys, the level and pain of the betrayal. They looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, Judah's one of the brothers, said to the other brothers, what's it going to gain us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Which was the original plan? And maybe Joseph even heard them mention that. But not till after they ate. I mean, who could kill their brother on an empty stomach after all? He said, what good is there for us? What profit is there? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, in a moment of temporary uh, ethic, after all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. We shouldn't kill him. We could just sell him, and then we make a little profit on the deal. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, by his brother pulled Joseph out of the cistern, I wonder what he's thinking as they're pulling him up. Oh, they've thought twice about it, good. <laughs> it went from bad to worse. And they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. We know from chapter 42 of the same story, which happened, this is much later in the story, once the brothers are found out and they're in trouble and they're feeling the stress of what they've done now, this lot later in the story. 
But once they are being held accountable for what they did, because Joseph lives, they said, surely we were being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when we pleaded. Uh, he pleaded with his life, for his life from us, but we would not listen. That's why all this trouble has come upon us. So we know that he was in that cistern screaming for his life. Please, brothers, don't break our father's heart. Please don't do this to me. Who's got the mustard? Pass the mustard, please. Betrayal. Man, isn't that a heavy betrayal? Nothing will flatten the tires of your heart or limit the scope of your dreams like being betrayed by the people who should be loving, supporting, and protecting you. And I would imagine we would have a very long line up here if I said, if you have ever experienced that from a parent or a spouse or a relative or a friend, come on up here and let's hear about it. Might empty the room and have all of you up here. Nothing messes you up like that. Isn't that true? Betrayal. I thought I could trust you. <laughs> and you were a sheep in wolf's clothing. A person who should have loved me, wounded me. Sometimes people will do that to you when they see you moving from ordinary to extraordinary. Third spike strip is slander. Slander. Genesis 39. Joseph is sold to a government official named Potiphar. So he was re-gifted, resold. He was he was he purchased, there was a profit, and he sold, he was sold probably for more than these travelers, these business people paid for him. Potiphar is a big dude, he's an important government official. And Joseph ends up going and serving Potiphar in such a way that everything Joseph touched prospered. Potiphar's house was way better off after Joseph than it was before Joseph. To the point where Potiphar could say, I don't think about anything. I don't make any business decisions. I don't write any checks. I don't even have to balance a checkbook. I so trust Joseph, and he does so well with everything that's handed to him. Man, I'm going, I'm going to be on vacation and just let him run everything. There are no eyes on Joseph. There's nobody making sure he doesn't steal or doing any, do anything inappropriate because he's so trusted. And he was worthy of the trust. And then Genesis 39. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He didn't concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. And now Joseph was well-built and handsome. So this Joseph was kind of a stallion. I mean, he's really hot. And after a while, that's, kind of, that's what it says in the text. So right here, I just read a different version. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph, and he said, and she said, come to bed with me. She wasn't even subtle about it. She, wasn't, she just said, hey, no one's watching. No one's here. Probably been a little while for you. Been a little while for me. Come on in. What happens in Potiphar's house stays in Potiphar's house. I mean, do I have... You get where I'm going? But he refused. And he said, with me in charge, my master does not even concern himself with anything in the house. He, he in effect, says this, how in the world could I repay such trust with something like that? No, 
And the text tells us that day after day after day, she kept inviting him in. Who knows what else was going on and what she exposed him to. But he had such high levels of integrity that he said, this is not the way you repay goodness. So one day, the story tells us, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. And she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house, she called her household servants. I don't know what she was thinking, but being rejected so many times when it's obvious that probably it was going to be likely to her that she wouldn't be rejected. I don't know if she was indignant or if she was just wounded. Or... But she called the household servants and said, look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house, exact opposite of what happened. Joseph is now being maligned. He's being slandered. All he's doing is trying to move to extraordinary with high levels of integrity and character and service. And he's misrepresented. And she kept his cloak beside her until the master came home. And then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Sometimes, en route from ordinary to spectacular, you'll be misrepresented. You'll be slandered. It will be told exactly the opposite, what actually, what, what, the exact opposite of what happened sometimes will be told. This is the payment you'll receive sometimes when your abundant integrity threatens someone who has no integrity at all. Do you see that? Have you experienced that? <laughs> Slander. And often, fortunately not super often, but every once in a while, Maybe not even often. Maybe every once in a while, but once is too much. It's the people that should be cheering for you the most that are likely to misrepresent you because people would rather you just get used to ordinary. Don't make us look bad by being spectacular. Jealousy, betrayal, slander, all spike strips people sometimes throw in your way. And finally, this one, ingratitude. You, you provided a full plate of food for, food for me, and I forget about it within five minutes of eating it. The road to extraordinary is paved with opportunistic people who will take what you have, have to give them and use it to advance themselves and then forget you ever gave it to them in the first place. Ingratitude. And man, does it flatten your tires. It's a form of betrayal, really. Joseph, while he's in prison, meets some people who are in prison, and one of them, that he, the people he meets, 
is the cupbearer of the Pharaoh who's been thrown into prison. Somehow he fell out of favor with the Pharaoh. He's down in prison and he's not liking it to go from the palace to the prison. And he goes to, he has a dream. And he goes to Joseph who has been known to interpret dreams. And he goes to Joseph, a fellow prisoner who's also prospered in the prison. He's in charge of the prison really by this time. Goes to him and says, I had this dream. I can't figure it out. Can you tell me what it means? In Genesis 40, we have this record. Joseph says, this is what it means, and says to him, you know, this represents this, and this represents this, and he gives him a good report. He says, pretty soon you're going to be back at your old position. You're going to be restored. And then he finishes up by saying, but now I've told you the dream, and it's going to be a good result, but when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in the dungeon. And if we keep reading, we have the account of the chief cupbearer being restored. And he doesn't remember to tell the Pharaoh about this guy, Joseph, who shouldn't be in prison. In verse 23 of chapter 40, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He completely forgot him. And then in 41, chapter 41, verse 1, we have this reference. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. So there's two years since Joseph took care of this guy, and for two years he's been forgetting Joseph in prison until finally Pharaoh has a dream, and then, bing, the light goes on. Oh, Pharaoh says, who can interpret this dream? And this cupbearer, two years after the fact, says, oh, yeah, there's Joseph. Ingratitude. That'll sometimes flatten your tires. In route from ordinary to extraordinary, sometimes people forget what you've done to them and almost treat you as though you've done nothing for them. But I've learned another lesson too, and I've been sharing it with you for a while now. And here's that lesson. Good things happen for those who refuse to abandon a godly dream, regardless of how many spike strips are thrown in their road. Good things happen. There's always something good waiting for you on the other side of not giving up. Always. In other words, our best enjoyments usually come on the other side of our longest endurements, not endearments, endurements. Our best enjoyments come on the other side of our longest, most uphill, arduous endurements. Our deepest satisfactions come from enduring our deepest challenges. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how it feels, how much more you enjoy a house you tore apart, gutted, and remodeled yourself when it's all done? It was somebody else's living room when you bought the thing, and six months later, after you've completely remodeled it, and it's got your pictures hanging, and you hung the sheet wall, sheetrock, after living with a big stack of sheetrock in the middle with three kids under three in the middle of the living room and doing all that hard work, and you're all done, you sit there, man, you just enjoy that room like you enjoy no other room. Isn't that true? Because your greatest enjoyments come on the other side of your longest endurements. I want you to read the whole story of Joseph this week. 
and pick up on this stuff. Because sometimes the greatest obstacles to an extraordinary life of faith and works will be the people around you and the lies they try to get you to believe. They'll try to keep you stuck on ordinary for as long as you're willing to stay there. But there's something beautiful waiting for those who refuse to stay stuck, who refuse to be derailed, who refuse to believe those lies. Do do you get the point? Did you hear what he said afterward? People are saying, don't do it. You're going to embarrass yourself. You're not good enough. And so at the beginning, he's talking about how I filled out the application so many times and put it in the envelope and then didn't mail the envelope. Let me tell you something. You don't get the applause if you don't mail the envelope. Your greatest enjoyments will come on the other side of your deepest endurements. Churchill was right. Never, never, never give up, ever. Dream, go for it, swing for the fences. Wise people will tell you when you're off track, people that have earned your trust. Quit believing the lies of people who say out of their own insecurities, you can't do that, you're not good enough. What are you, crazy? Because the answer is, yeah, I am, and I believe in Jesus. Let's pray. And now, Lord, please equip us not only with the dreams to experience extraordinary things for you, but with the means to do them. And surround us with people like this grandmother who hold us up, lift us up, buoy us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.